Amen. If you would please now rise for the first reading of God's word. We have the privilege today to hear from the Lord from Luke 7, verses 11 through 17, and then we'll fast forward a bit to verses 36 through 50. You can find that on your, in your pew Bible on page 1026. Luke 7, 11 through 17, and then 36 through 50. People of God, hear the word of the Lord. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Fast forward to verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them, wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them loved him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst, among themselves, Who is this that, who even forgives sins? And he said to the women, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let me encourage all of us now, if you're able, to rise for our second reading of Scripture. And turn either in your own copy or in the Pew Bible to Psalm 103. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible that is found on page 
594. Being away last week at General Assembly and having a short week coming back, I, I didn't feel quite up to the task of taking us into Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. It needs a little more thinking and a little more praying. But one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 103. And so I had the opportunity to re-meditate on that psalm and explore that together this morning. Psalm 103. Let's read it now together. Of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made, ways, made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of our God. Please be seated. And let's pray and seek the Lord's illumination on his word. Our God, we are so thankful to you for all the words that you have written. We thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for the way they draw us and call us to go further up and further in in our life and commitment to you. We pray now that even as we have stood at attention to hear your word read, so we would sit with illumination as your word is expounded. We pray that you would be with all of us as we listen, be with the one who speaks. May the words of his mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing unto you. This we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if you know your literature, you know that the title of today's sermon, Further Up and Further In, comes from a very particular set of books. Does anybody know where it comes from? 
comes from the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the very last book, the last battle it's called. And the last section of that book, as the characters are moving into, I don't want to spoil it for those of you who haven't read it, moving into the happy ending, say that way, a, a, a character from a very early book meets them, and he says, Welcome in the lion's name. Come further up and further in. And that's how, really, how the story of the Narnia Chronicles ends. It's also, though, such a great expression for what the gospel is inviting us to week after week in all the pages of Scripture, every leaf of the New Testament rustling with this promise that God in Christ is calling you and I and inviting us every week to come further up and further into the goodness of Jesus Christ. Well, the question, though, the struggle for many of us is how do I actually activate that? How do I actually get there? How do I actually step further up and further in, in the midst of an incredibly noisy life? How many of you would say that your life is at least sometimes somewhat a little bit noisy? A little bit, right? And that brings us then to this psalm this morning. Now, the, the heading of Psalm 103 is not extraordinarily detailed of David, is what it tells us. No other historical hints as to when it was written, no other markers, no other specifics, even as we're reading Psalm 103. There's no particular clues as to when it was written or the setting or the time in which David wrote it. It's also curious in that this psalm has no imprecation. It's not cursing the enemies of God as some of the psalms do. It's also curious in that it doesn't have any lamentation. It's not, it's not confessing sin. It's not crying out in weakness as many of the psalms do. But what do we see and what did we hear as we read this psalm? We, if, if you read it carefully, you go back and reread it again, perhaps this afternoon, what you're going to get as the big sense from this text is it is full of a glowing love and a joy in God and in his salvation. Now I ask you, has David gone further up and further in? He's writing these words that show that he has. I ask you again, do you think that David's life was noisy? King David, did he have a noisy life? And yet somehow he learned amidst that noisy life to take that step day by day, that further up and further into the goodness of God. And so the question before us and kind of the, the, the glimpse of the goodness that we're going to have through this text is, what if this psalm is not just a record of, of what happened to David, but a roadmap for you and for me? What if from this psalm we could learn how to move the truths of God's promises from our head down to our heart? What if we, from this psalm, could learn this morning how to go further up and further in to God's goodness every day? That is what we're going to see. That is what we're going to endeavor to do. And we're going to see that to go further up and further in to the goodness of God and the gospel, it requires of us and requires in us four things. And those four things are the four headings on your sermon outline. It requires intentionality. It requires meditation. It requires imagination. And then finally, this one may surprise you, it requires fear. Intentionality, meditation, imagination, and fear. And kids, if you've got your outlines, we're going to step through each of those one by one, starting with 
intentionality, to, to really grow in your love and your joy in the Lord, it requires intentionality. We have to be deliberate. We have to give this some effort. We have to focus. Everything that's good in life takes effort, right? Requires intentionality. And it's the same here. And so number one on your outlines, this idea of intentionality, kids, there are two things that are involved that we see here in this psalm. And the first is a word that maybe some of us haven't heard before. It's a fun word. The word is soliloquy. What is soliloquy? Soliloquy, number one, is when we engage our hearts by speaking to ourselves. I want you to see that that is what is going on in this psalm. Look at how the psalm begins and how it ends. Who is David speaking to? Bless the Lord, O my soul. He is talking to his own heart. Again in verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. And of course later in, in verses 20 and 21, he says, bless the Lord, you angels, bless the Lord, all his hosts, bless the Lord, all his work. But what does he end the psalm with? The exact same words again, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then as you read through verses 3 through 5, and you'll see that he keeps using the word you, your. He's he's making this personal. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the first thing to magnify here from the text is that intentionality requires focus. We must engage our own hearts. And one of the ways we do that is, yes, by talking to yourself, talking to your hearts. Sometimes when I go praying, I will pray out loud, maybe as I'm walking around my neighborhood, and I sometimes wonder, what would my neighbors think? But who cares? We need to talk to our hearts. David is showing us we need to engage our hearts. People say to me all the time, it's hard for me to pray, and I say, do you pray out loud? Well, no. Try it. Speaking engages the heart. And if we want to go further up and further in, we need to engage our hearts. And it is getting harder and harder, is it not? We live in a world and a society of endless distractions. You and I and probably most people in this room have a portal to instant distraction and endless distraction in your vest pocket or sitting next to your Bible. It is so so hard to stay focused. It is so hard not to just fall into the web and the lazy river of endless distraction. It's so easy to be mentally aimless rather than intentionally focused. One of the ways... We take back our, 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 our focus is through that practice of soliloquy, engaging your heart by speaking to yourself. And I know that for some of us this is a struggle. Maybe you think it's impossible. It is not. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. We can, with God's help, regain control over our focus. Now, how can we do that? What are some, what are some practical things we can do to sort of declutter your heart space and head space. This is the second aspect of intentionality. And it is the idea of being specific or specificity. Number two, kids, on your outline, praising God's goodness personally. And I want you to see that both of those are here in the text as well. When the psalmist says, when David says, bless the Lord, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to bless the Lord? Bless the Lord in Scripture means to praise God specifically for His goodness for the good things that he has given us. But David doesn't stop by just saying, bless the Lord for good things. No, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals your diseases, redeems your life, crowns you 
And so it's not just thanking God for His goodness, but thanking Him for His goodness personally. All His benefits, he says. And if you look at verses 3 through 5, you're going to see sort of in, the, in a nutshell there the whole story of the Christian life from conversion to ultimately to a new creation, right? So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Some of us are getting older. Some of us don't feel quite yet like our youth is renewed like the eagles. Am I right? Nobody wants to nod. They're like, I don't know who you're talking about. Well, I've got gray hair and I'm going to nod. I don't always feel like my youth is renewed like the eagles. But the promise is there that in the new creation it shall be. All of God's benefits. And we are called, and if we want to be intentional... We are called to think about those things, to believe those things, not just for other people, but for me and for you who believe. And to thank God and to praise God for it. Let me just ask you this. When is the last time, those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, when is the last time that you just took some time, sat down, and went through your life and cataloged the good things God has given you, one by one, little by little, and just thanked Him for them? This is what it means to praise God's goodness specifically, personally. Do you know what happens when you do that? You're going to grow in joy. Because as you remember all the good things that you have from God, joy will grow from that. A friend of mine said, you've heard me say it many times, joy comes as an awareness of what we have. And as we list before the Lord all the good things that we have from Him, we will grow in joy. We will go further up and further in. So it requires intentionality. How do we, though, grow even in that intentionality? How do we make that intentionality stronger? How do we reinforce this habit? That's the next thing that we need is meditation. Now, when I say meditation, perhaps lots of images come to your mind, some of them weird. We're not talking about something that you would learn from a New Eastern cult. We're not talking about something you might read about in a book by the Dalai Lama. We're not talking about any of those so-called meditative practices where the goal is to empty your mind. No. Christian meditation is something completely different. Christian meditation is not emptying your mind and heart. It is filling your mind and your heart with all the good things that God has done. And so there are three things that we need to remember and meditate upon. And all three, again, are in this text. The first, number three on your outlines, kids, we remember and meditate on the acts of God. Remembering what God did in history. David is doing this here in verses 6 and 7. You see it. He's, he's recalling the story of the Exodus. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. I know if you read the Psalms and you read the Old Testament, you, you, you start to notice that like these guys are always going on and on about the Exodus. Yeah. Because the Exodus is not just another Old Testament story. It's the defining Old Testament story. The story of the Exodus is, in the Old Testament context, the equivalent of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New. It is, it's not not an exaggeration to say, the Exodus is the gospel according to Moses. Just like we have the gospel according to Matthew, Luke, Mark, John, etc. Going further up, and further into God's goodness requires us to go back and deeper in to the story 
of God's goodness. Have you ever noticed that, that every good story that you enjoy, think about the ones that you really enjoy. Think about like the classics or the really good stories. Do you know what they all have in common almost all the time? A really good story always involves, in some form or another, the extraordinary or the supernatural invading the ordinary life of people and changing those lives. Think about it. It's pretty universally true. Why is it that that meta-theme so grips the hearts of people? Why is it that stories in that mold so grab us? Because it actually happened in history. That is what the gospel is. It is God supernaturally invading and intervening to ordinary life to rescue sinners. And so the first thing we must remember, as verse 6 puts in front of us, is that the gospel is first and foremost not a prescription on how to change your life, but a description of what God did to rescue you. It is a declaration of what God actually did. It's not abstract. The story of the Exodus, the story of the resurrection of Jesus, these are not fairy tales. These are historical events. They actually happened on a specific calendar day in history. And just by remembering that, doesn't it make it just a little more real? So we must remember the acts of God, what He did in history. And then the next step in pondering God's acts We are to ponder his character. That's number four, kids. We ponder God's character. Ponder who God is eternally. And we see this here in verse 8. After describing the acts of God in verse 6 and 7, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. David is quoting there from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. He's quoting God's full name. And he's describing God's character, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Why is that such an extraordinary statement? If you, if you know, if you've read the book of Exodus within the last year or so, you remember that God made that statement. God made that declaration about his own character after the incident with the golden calf. And the incident of the golden calf is, is a really horrifying event. Not only is it, it is a, is this terrible instance of idolatry, but where were the people of Israel camping when they made the golden calf? In the shadow of Mount Sinai, which was still covered with the cloud and the smoke representing God's presence. They made an idol to replace God in the presence of God. It's an extraordinarily horrifying event description of how dark our hearts can become, and it is even in that darkness and after that darkness that God says, nevertheless, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Isn't it an extraordinary thing to remember the gracious character of our God? Think about, think about this. Look again at verse 8, the second part. And imagine how horrifying it would be if the words slow to and abounding in were swapped. How horrifying would it be if the God of the whole universe was abounding in anger and slow to steadfast love? Wouldn't that be terrifying? But the good news of the gospel is no. God is good. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is who He is, and He never changes. Do we ponder that? Pondering that, thinking about that, meditating on that, chewing it over in your hearts and minds is part of what it means to go further up and further into the goodness of God. 
And God is not just active and God is not just perfect. But number five, we should meditate on the promises of God. We should rejoice in what God offers to us as sinners. And again, we see this in verses 9 and 10. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Has it ever really sunk into you that you, not just other people, but you also are a sinner? Does it continue to sink into us day by day that sin is not just a problem that other people have, but a problem that we have? Do we think about what our sins actually would deserve from God? What does our catechism say? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. But now, remember, what does God promise us instead? Instead of the hell that we deserve, what does He offer us instead? Verses 9 and 10. He does not always chide. He won't keep His anger forever. He will not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity. The psalmist doesn't say they're not there. He says, no, they're there. We have sin. But God is gracious. God offers us life and forgiveness. Love, forgiveness, compassion, verses 11 through 13. We'll come back to those in a minute. Friends, part of going up going further up and further into God's goodness is understanding that one does not simply move on from this. You don't hear about your sin and about the grace of God and just think, okay, check that box. God understood and now I move on. No, you keep coming back. You keep coming back and you, and you ask God to give you the knowledge of himself and the knowledge of yourself. Show me how I can repent. Give me the joy of forgiveness. Why did we read Psalm 32 earlier in our, earlier in our service? Because for all the amazing things that David's life involved, for all the power and the glory of the great king of Israel, David never really got past the fact that he was a sinner forgiven by the grace of God. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose trespasses are forgiven, whose sin is covered. He doesn't say blessed is the man who holds the throne. He says blessed is the one against whom God will not count his sin. Is that the mainspring of your heart and your life, your ambition as well? For all of his learning, this was also the inner heart of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5 that we used as our assurance of pardon. Paul didn't rejoice in his learning. In fact, in another place, he says, my learning isn't anything as important as knowing Christ. He rejoiced that if we are in Jesus, we are a new creation. We are forgiven. The righteousness of God covers us. I know that most of you know this. I may not know half of you half as well as I should like, but I know that most of you know this. Why doesn't it grip our hearts as much as it should? Because we're not as proficient as we should be in the next thing, which is gospel imagination, numbers six and seven. We see this here in the text itself, but number six, what does it mean to employ gospel imagination? Number six, kids, it means that we amplify, we make bigger God's promises with illustrations. The idea here is that you should use analogies and images from ordinary life to amplify and anchor the truth of God to your hearts. David is modeling it here in verses 11 through 14. Look at what he says. In verses 9 and 10, he stated the doctrine. God is going to forgive us. But then in verses 11 through 13, he blows it up. He amplifies it using 
illustrations from ordinary life. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions. How far are the heavens above the earth? Far. How far is east from west? Far. How much would a good father pity his children? Verse 13. David is saying, this is what God does to our sins. It's like this, this high, this far. This is how good he is. This is what Jesus was doing at the cross. Using illustrations to make them vivid, to animate the truth and stick it to your hearts. Do you do that when you think about the Bible? David does it here. Jesus did it in his parables. Paul does it as in epistles. And it wasn't just them. God did it too in the greatest of all acts of imagination. Number seven, we connect all of God's promises to their incarnation. What was the ultimate act of imagination in history? It's not something that any one of us came up with. It was that which God did when he sent his own son into human flesh. And scripture says he is the what? He is the image of the invisible God. Other places of scripture say all of God's promises find their yes and amen in him. One of the reasons that we read those sections from Luke chapter 7, they weren't just randomly selected by Elder Pinsensham or myself. They were selected because they illustrate what we see here in verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all the diseases? It's not you, it's Jesus. His life on earth was a foreshadowing. It was an intrusion of the life of heaven and eternity into the ordinary history. The reason we can believe that our sins have been taken away as far as the east is from the west, the reason we can believe that God's love for us is as high as the heavens above the earth, the reason we can believe, verse 14, that God knows our frame and remembers that we are dust is because Jesus embraced all of that for us. He embraced our dust when He took on human flesh, when He was breathing in the smells of dust and decay in the major. He was the one who took our days. Verse 15 says, our days are like grass. The Lord Jesus took on our days, entered into our history. He is the one who faced death. And so when we get to verse 17 and we read that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. The reason we know that it's true for us is because for a terrible moment on the cross, it was untrue for Him when He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? All of the good things that you see about God and His promises in the Scriptures, even in the Old Testament, they're like kaleidoscopic glimpses pointing to whom? To Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection. And so the good news, the big promise from Psalm 103 is that God's imagination is so much greater than yours and mine. And then even when our imaginations fail to latch on to the goodness of His promises, the gospel is not that we get only the good that we can imagine. The gospel is that we get all the good that God has imagined. That's the good news. That's the big promise. And yet we are called to pursue gospel imagination. And so let me encourage even those of you who don't like to imagine, this is worth, this is worth your growth. This is worth praying for. So we have these three things, intentionality, meditation, imagination. 
there's one more thing we need to pull them all together, and that is fear. (laughs) Now, perhaps you're sitting there saying, whoa, cold water moment. Fear? Yes, fear. Three times in this psalm we see this phrase, verse 11, verse 13, verse 17. Those who fear him, verse 11. Those who fear him, verse 13, and verse 17 again. Those who fear him. That seems almost counterintuitive to joy at first glimpse. But remember, friends, this is so important, not just for this passage, but any passage. Whenever you read a word in the Bible that draws you up short, you shouldn't immediately say, well, I know what that word means. You should ask, how does the Bible define this idea? And so you and I may have an idea of what fear entails in our own minds, but it's very important to ask, how does the Bible define this word? So how does the Bible define the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord, number eight. This is a, this is a brief definition. I'll, I'll read you a longer one here in a moment. But a brief definition of the fear of the Lord is number eight. It is the sense that God is unconquerable, yet in Jesus he is wonderful. We see the unconquerability of God there in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Can anybody beat God? No. Can anybody defeat God? No. He is unconquerable. And to those who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus, that should be terrifying in the traditional sense of the word fear. But for those who are believers in Christ, those who give Jesus their heart and embrace those promises, that fear is no longer associated with naked terror, but with all these wonderful benefits. Look at how it's placed in the text. Verse 11, when it speaks of those who fear God, what's it connected to? God's steadfast love. Verse 13, when it speaks of those who fear the Lord, what's it connected to? The Lord showing compassion to us. Verse 17, when it speaks of those who fear the Lord, what's the connection? It's a connection to God's love being on us from everlasting to everlasting. And so, when you come to Jesus, that fear of the Lord doesn't disappear, but it's transfigured. What is fear in ordinary life? When somebody says, I'm afraid, what are we really saying? I'll give you a a couple examples that may help. Imagine that you see a millipede. Any of you ever seen a millipede? Well, you know, they're, they're interesting. Maybe, you know, they're not that big, maybe that long. Okay, how many of you are scared of millipedes? Yeah, not, not too many, a few. All right, fair enough. But, you know, in the end, it's that big, right? You could, you could smash it with your foot. So not that scary. Imagine that millipede were 100 feet long and 60 feet tall. How many of us would be scared of millipedes then? Both hands, right? <laughs> Counter-Presbyterian, two hands in the air. We would be terrified because it's so big. In a, in a general sense, what is fear? Fear is a sense of smallness before that which we cannot control. You know, a 60-foot, 100-foot-long millipede is something I cannot control. I feel very small. I'd be scared. Give you another illustration. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon in Arizona? You step up to the brink, and it's enormous. There is a vastness there that you cannot control. And if you approach it flippantly, if you goof around, you could fall in and be consumed. And yet if you approach it carefully and in the appropriate way, It's glorious. The fear of the Lord is like that. Fear is a sense of smallness before that which we cannot control. The fear of the Lord for believers is an experience of smallness, yes, but a sense of joyful smallness. Before the God whom, yes, we cannot control Him, 
but in Jesus he is wonderful. The fear of the Lord is the experience of joyful smallness before the God whom we cannot control and yet who is also the God who in Jesus is wonderful. And it grows in us as we do the things that this text describes. Take seriously and seriously believe in the godness and the goodness and the promises of Christ. So when you read the fear of the Lord in the scriptures, as a believer, don't be afraid. Remember, it is that sense of joyful smallness that we have when we believe God seriously. And remember that there is no bottom to the goodness of our God because he went to the bottom for you and I in Christ. And if you believe that, then you will see that Psalm 103 is really just another way of saying, welcome in the lion's name. Come further up and further in. Number nine, kids, this is the end. The gospel, even, the, even in this life, the gospel is like heaven itself. The further in we go, the more wonder there is to taste and to know. And for all of us here today, Jesus ends this text And I, in his name, end this text by saying, Christ invites you to come further up and further in. Will you come? All you have to do is believe his promises. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we do thank you for the gospel promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that there is a way, even in the midst of all the noise that we experience day by day, for each and every one of us to grow enjoy, to move the truth from our heads to our hearts, to go further up and further in. Help us to take what we've learned here today and apply this to our discipleship day by day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.